Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Total Education Show, the talk shop for teachers, parents, and administrators. Here's your host of the show, Neil Haley, the Total Tutor. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilHaley.com, and I'm excited to welcome the program comedian Paula Poundstone, author of the Totally Unscientific Study of the Search for Human Happiness. Paula, thanks for calling. Have you found human happiness? That must have been an unbelievable journey to find it. I found some good hints. (laughs) yeah, I mean, I've, I, yeah, I've, I, I've definitely, uh, I definitely, I think I'm steering in the right direction. Um, my my book is uh, uh, the totally unscientific study of the search for human happiness. It is a series of experiments doing things that I or other people thought would make me happy, and each chapter is written as an experiment. It's, it's number one job is to be a funny book, and I, I think it pulls yes, that yes. off. But. Uh, um, it, it goes a little beyond that. It, 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 every every chapter um, uh, is written as an experiment with the um, hypothesis and the conditions and the, hopefully the funniest field notes ever written. But the real question for me wasn't whether I would enjoy doing something, but, but what thing that I could do that would leave me with a, a, a little lasting uh, um, uplift, so sort of an umbrella, as it were, for the in, inevitable reins of a person's daily life. So the analysis in each chapter was just a story of uh, raising a house full of kids and animals and being a stand-up comic for a living and, and being stuck being me 24 hours a day. Uh, yeah. So in the end, it's the it's the memoir. It's the story of raising a of raising my my family and, and uh, over the course of seven years. Oh wow! So okay, so you know what I've noticed, Paula, looking at your whole background. I definitely, I mean, from the days I remember how awesome you were in the '80s at HBO, and to look at your journey throughout that time. Now people are finally going to get a kind of a taste to know who you were throughout certain times and time period of your life. Like I'm sure people think of you as a comedian mostly, but you do so much more. You're an actress, you're, you're an author, you're, 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 you're a, a journalist. So all of these different things out there in the book, it's kind of showing that you, some of the stuff you said seven year journey or are throughout your whole life in this book. It is, it is, it is seven years because well, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which was some of the experiments were, took place in a day, and some of them took place over the course of several months. For example, um, there's one, one, well, two chapters. There's the Get Organized Chapter Part 1 and the Get Organized Chapter Part 2 because it was so damned hard to do. Um, I started uh, in, chap- in the first chapter of the Get Organized Chapter. I tried to do it by myself. Um, and eventually I hired, I just sort of bottomed out. It was a horrible process. And I hired a, um, an organizer oh to help me, um, which was a story in and of itself. Uh, it, you know, it was surprising how emotionally wrenching, like going through the stuff in your house to sort of discard. Oh, isn't it terrible? It oh, my is. gosh. Apollo- it is. It's really, I mean, it's much harder than I ever would have thought. I, I kept my underwear in the same footlocker for 30 years, oh my. and this woman moved it. Oh, um, and, yeah. she would, I, I, and she would take my garments and hold them up in front of me like they were, like they were testifying before a Senate committee <laughs> uh, at, 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 with this look at her face like, really? Um, and and I, we did end up paring things down for sure. She told me that people only wear 20% of what's in their closet. And just to think of women and how many Which clothes. Think- that, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I did end up, uh, I, I did end up getting rid of 
of a lot of stuff. And and by the way, it did leave one with a a, a lighter, more comfortable feel, you know. Um, uh, but it took. I mean, it took forever. It was a long. It was a long process. I got rid of some of the games that were in the house. That and it, sometimes it was things that we'd never even really used. But there was something about it that getting rid of it what made me feel like a failure. I think mm-hmm. you know, like we don't look anything like the people on the cover of the box on the games. No, no, Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we would have a game, you know, the, you know the ones that would have like a, you know, a happy family with like a, a good-looking loser dad, a, a sort of hapless character on the cover. They never had anybody who looked like us. They never had anybody flipping the board in a rage or shoving a playing piece up their nose or saying, it's your turn, will you go? Which we've never played a game without. No, no that, that's so, so, just, uh, yeah, it's so it true. It's a process. Yeah, it's a process. So did it make did it make you happy after you got organized? Did that experiment work, and, that, and then now you're happy because you're organized? Well, the thing about getting organized is that it's the staying organized that's really the kicker. Um, you know, my desk, I find, um, it, it, you know, it just sort of, it, stuff just sort of grows on it. I don't know how it happens. But one thing I have discovered is... Uh, at one point, I was up to it was a foot deep. That's the, the and, and I don't even know how big the surface of the desk is, but it was a foot deep. And I found out that it takes me um, an inch per hour to clean it. Oh. Uh, that's working on my own. Um, yeah, I mean, stuff still just sort of shows up there. Like, okay, there's things like okay, like Bed Bath and Beyond coupons. Yeah. I don't think I've ever been to the Bed Bath and Beyond when I had one in my hand. <laughs> That's and true. Yet, we have thousands I, I have of them. A crop of them growing at home all the time. Most definitely. Now, when you talk about three ch- raising three children in part and and, and uh, sing, a single mother raising three children, how are you able to do it with all the travel you do? You know, all the different uh, comedy stops you have, or other opportunities, book signings, all these different little, things. How do you do? Little it? doggy door. A little doggy door and some and some some water, uh, just inside. <laughs> no, I for the times that I travel, uh, I had a, a, a nanny. She wasn't a live-in nanny. I mean, she lived here when I wasn't here, but um, uh, but yeah, my kids had the same nanny for for uh, twenty one years, um, or was it twenty two years or something like that? Wow. So uh, in that way, in that way, it was fairly, it was fairly. Uh, a stable um and i my travel schedule was um is for the most part although there are some rare exceptions to this rule um it's for the most part friday saturday um sometimes thursday friday saturday um but um yeah, I don't stay out for long periods of time. I, I don't. I, 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 in the first place, it wouldn't be good for family life. Yeah. But the truth is, even before I had kids, I never stayed out for right. a long time. Right. I, I just like to come home. Um, I like to bring the small shampoos uh, <laughs> from the hotel and put them in the corner of the bathtub. Well, well definitely, we're gonna. Uh, an unbelievable thing, Paula, is that you're gonna. We're gonna laugh uh, definitely with this book, with the different experiments you do. So we can pick up your book on Amazon and all finer bookstores, and also it's available at your website as well, right, Paula? Yes. Awesome. And yep. can yep. we? Can uh, we? Uh, God, sorry. Well, no, I was just gonna say on the. Uh, uh, um, you know they make you get the blurbs as, yeah. a, as a writer. You, you know you you have the um, on the back where people read it and say they liked it or they didn't like it. Well, I I figured fairly early on. I, I mean after I'd written it, um, but uh, I, I figured I must have been on the right path. I have uh, I have accolades on the back of my book from Dick Van Dyke, Carl Reiner. Dick Cavett, yeah. uh, uh, Peter Sagal, Garrison Keillor, Lily Tomlin, uh, and Trisha Yearwood. Wow! Yes, I mean, I mean, it's not, I figured I must have been going in the right direction. Anyone searching for happiness, and if they can laugh about it too, Paula, in the search for happiness, what a great thing, you know. Uh, so we definitely go to your website, paulaponstone.com. We could check you out in social media wise. And thanks again for calling. And uh, I can't wait to check out the book. So thanks for calling. All right. Thanks a lot. It was nice talking with you. Nice talking to you, too. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment.
Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter, at TotalTutor, and NeilHaley.com. And uh, I am excited about my guest. I have, we know from Jurassic World uh, and many other shows, the ABC sitcom, Melissa and Joey. I'm excited to welcome to the program Nick Robinson of Everything, Everything. Hey, I'm doing pretty well, thanks. How are you? Uh, fantastic, fan- fantastic, Nick. You know, um, just thinking about, you know, specifically enough, uh, the how you become this such this kind of heartthrob kind of person that you know everyone will want somebody like yourself to go and uh, try to get them to go outside to have a relationship, right, Nick? So, did you ever think in your life when you grew up that you would be that kind of person to say that the girls all want to to hang out with and talk to? Never, never. I wouldn't have seen that one coming, um, but. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm excited that people are excited about it, and the fact that there's been um, you know so much talk and anticipation around the release, uh, which, by the way, uh, comes out tomorrow, Friday, May 19th. Select theaters, check it out. Awesome. Yeah, I watched the trailer, and it's really a great love story, Nick. And uh, tell us about your character, and you know, and specifically enough the girl, because we all have to feel sorry for her in certain ways because she never got to see the outside world because of a certain illness. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so she has skits, which is a severe combined immunodeficiency disorder. Basically, what that means is that she can't leave her house. She's uh, trapped inside. And I play Ollie, who is um, her next-door neighbor. And, uh, yeah, over the course of the story, they start a correspondence, and he has to, I guess, convince her to um, to see him and to uh, you know risk certain things in order to be with him. And uh, they end up deciding to, I don't want to give too much away, but they decide to risk it all together, and they uh, they decide to run away. Yes, and, and you can see that in the trailer. And it, and also, this is based on a book as well, Nick, correct? A, a very successful book, correct? The, the movie. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, this is based off of a novel by Nicholas Yu. And uh, He's, uh, yeah, really talented uh, young adult um, author. So you already got a built-in fan base, Nick, for this movie, then, based on the people who love this book. Yeah, yeah, people um, really do like this book a lot. Uh, really, 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 really respond to it. So um, I'm just hoping that we did it some justice. Absolutely, um, and, and, and in so many ways. And what did you think of working with your co-star, especially having to be kind of outside at certain points, filming all the different things and, and the process? Did you feel for that character in so many ways, Nick, in the way that you were trying to communicate with her and thinking of specifically what that girl had to go through uh, based on the story? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she um, she does not have it easy in this thing. She's... Uh, trapped inside, and, you know, she has had almost very limited contact with the outside world. Um, and I think Amanda does a fantastic job of capturing kind of, you know, that innocence and that, um, <coughs> excuse me, that naivete, but um, she also is someone who takes chances and risks, Um you know, with the character, this person isn't just someone who sits around and asks why. She actually goes out and tries to change things for herself. And I think Amanda uh, played it beautifully, and she's she is a, a really um, special young actress. She is like so mature and thoughtful and caring and um, aware, and I think that comes across in her acting. I think so, too. I mean, I'm moved by just the trailer in a way saying, you know, thinking of first love, Nick. And that's what I, I'm sure a lot of your fans will be excited to come see you in this film. And then also the people who have read the book, the, the love story between you two is just tremendous in a way that you're never really able to even touch each other for such a period of time in the film that uh, so many girls would love to be romanced like that. Right, Nick? I think you're right. 
Are do you call your? your I are, think. Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Good. Oh, go, sorry, no, go ahead. No, go I, ahead. so Didn't Nick, do you, yeah, you go ahead and answer that, and then I have another question for you. Go ahead, Nick. What were you gonna say? Yeah, uh, well, I'd say um, I hope that yeah, this, this is something that people, uh, especially you know, people can emphasize in, in a manless situation. Um, uh, I think that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the most romantic thing in the world is is being um, unrequited love. So they they can't be with one another to stop them from uh, from making sure that their love comes true. Absolutely. Uh, making sure that that love comes true, Nick. That's such a great point that you make, uh, making sure that that love, the, the love comes true. And are you a romancer like that, Nick? For the ladies listening to this, uh, do you consider yourself that kind of romance, like your character? Oh, I'd like to think so. I don't know if I'd um, want to run away to the beach with a girl with an immunodeficiency disorder, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd like to think that I am a, a romantic, romantic person. And what would you say also about preparing for this character compared to other characters that you've played? Kind of give me give me a little bit of a how you prepared for this this role. Uh, well, uh, I uh, tried to spend as much time as possible with the old man before that started to get um, on the same wavelength, and uh, I uh, got the. With the book, and I read through um, the story, and the, it, it kind of goes into some of all these family troubles. In that, um, he is a uh, troubled young man at the beginning. I mean, he has a doesn't have the best family life. His dad, uh, heavy drinker, um, and I think that a manless character kind of brings out of him a new appreciation for you know the world around him, he starts to see things through her eyes and she's seeing everything for the first time. So it's, uh, I think that they do things, they, they, uh, they do things for each other. Yeah, and, and and that's interesting. So reading the book, so that's that that that's a definite plus in in a way to understand the differences between the book and the movie, and and really uh, understanding your character, Nick, for sure. Uh, where are where again? You said in theaters on Friday. Uh, the the movie comes out on Friday in theaters. Ch- definitely check your local listings in the area. I already Googled it. It's definitely uh, in a lot of different theaters in Pittsburgh, but we are nationally syndicated all and all over the world as well, so people can check it out. But where can we follow you, Nick, as well, and find information on you? Where can we go? Yeah, you can follow. Um, uh, keep posted on the film. Uh, I think that the handle is uh, everything, everything uh, film. Or you can follow me on Instagram at uh, the real Nick Robinson if you're so inclined. I'm sure they will. You will, uh, Nick. Any other projects going on right now that you'd like to talk about for a second, Nick? Anything going else going on? Uh, no, I'm. There's, uh, yeah, there's, there's, um, you know, a few things coming down the pipeline, um, but I'm really mainly focused on this right now. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's so soon. It's funny how quickly you make something and then the, um, you know, the anticipation before it comes out. So I'm just mainly focused on this. It's a great story. When you connect yourself from a book to a movie, a lot of times that's perfect because you already got a built-in audience. Now you'll get a new audience, and you'll get your fans from all the great shows that you've been on, Nick. So it's a win-win for sure. So everyone needs to check out Everything Everything in theaters on Friday. Nick, thanks for calling, and take care. Thank you. Take care. Check it out. All right. See you later. Okay, thanks. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor, NeilHaley.com, and I'm excited to welcome the program. New York Times bestselling author, co-author of Spinglish, Henry Beard, also the co-founder of National Lampoon. Henry, thanks for calling. How are you? 
Neil, thanks for having me on. Just fine. I really want to know the story, first of all, how this National Lampoon thing, because, I mean, I, I'm the one that knows about the movies, you know, you know, or National Lampoon starts the, the title of the movie. But kind of tell us the story of how you co-founded National Lampoon. Well, in sort of short version, both Doug Kenny, uh, my co-founder, and the producer of the movie Animal House, uh, and Caddyshack, we were at the Harvard Lampoon. The Harvard Lampoon had always done magazine parodies, but they were really like a, a regular issue that just happened to look sort of like time. My late business partner, Robert Hoffman, had the idea that we should do a parody of Playboy. And oh, wow. he cold called Hugh Hefner and uh, said, we'd like to do that. And his secretary said, uh, he'll get right back to you. Five minutes later, Hefner called and said, I will do anything I can to support this project. So we went ahead and did the parody, and it was extremely uh, successful. I think we sold 600,000 copies in 10 days. But most importantly, it taught us that you could actually do a magazine that looked like a magazine. Yeah, I mean, and so you're bringing me back now, Henry. I remember it on the on the, on the shelves and all those specific things now as you bring me back with that. And you were really into, like, a lot of the characters, like caricatures of things in National Lampoon, right? For sure. As part of your brand. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and again, we have to emphasize, particularly given the, uh, the the colorful politics of our time, our great advantage when we started the National Lampoon, among others, the first issue was in April of 1970, and the president was Richard Nixon. Oh, yeah. And during this whole period that we were publishing, uh, he was an endless source of political satire material. And at the same time, you know, nobody had really come along to, to tap into the huge attic full of images and experiences of an entire generation. So we really had a free reign to, to just go after everything, pa- parody ads, parody comics, you know, uh, parodies of every kind of thing you could imagine. And we had a very good art director, so the magazine really looked good. Yeah, it, it definitely did for sure. And uh, what was your, you were a co-founder. Did you do editing as well, Henry, in the magazine, for the magazine? Yeah, both Douglas, Kenny, and I uh, did both editing and writing. And one of the things that uh, I can tell you from doing that magazine, it, it may be a monthly magazine, but it seems like there's a deadline every 12 days. <laughs> uh, when I was there over a period of six years, I wrote nearly one million words, which were supposed to be funny. So at the same time we were editing, we were also had to write. I mean, the, the, the big advantage I will tell you for doing a magazine like that, that could be considered sometimes a little bit edgy, was nobody said, oh, no, let's not publish that. What everybody said was, we have five blank pages. We have two days to fill them. Give me something. <laughs> so we would really publish almost anything with a reason. Awesome. Oh, cool. All right. So I guess you, after all the things you did to Nixon, you need to kind of use this deceptive language to say, hey, I didn't do anything wrong based on what you did with National Lampoon. So here comes your uh, you're co-authoring a book called Spinglish. And, you know, uh, I, I think this is hilarious because you just just a couple of the of the of the things to be able to use language in a way that uh, is deceptive and yet won't offend people sometimes or will offend people. It's funny. So how did this how did you come up with this idea? Of writing this book with your co-author. Well, uh, my co-author, Christopher Surf, who's also had a huge career at Sesame Street, uh, we had done a book called The Politically Correct Dictionary and Handbook. And, of course, politically correct terms are a little bit like Spinglish, except they're really kind of designed to make you feel better. You're not fat. You're, you know, you're horizontally yeah. challenged. Uh, you're not short. You're, you're vertically challenged, things like that. Spinglish, though, we realized was a natural offshoot of this because it lets you basically lie whilst coming up with terms that don't appear to be lies on their on their face. And really, it goes back a long ways, because what people forget sometimes about the English language, uh, other than the fact that it has a million words, is it has two separate languages. And one is the old Anglo-Saxon, kill. Right. And the other is Latin, terminate with extreme prejudice. So there's always a Latinate way to say stuff if you want to kind of hide the fact that you're doing something bad. So what I'm thinking, Henry, is that you need to send this to every politician in in Washington D.C. and they need to utilize this in their in their speeches and everything. Something tells me that they may have copies in their offices already. It's amazing how much of this stuff keeps coming out. I mean, you know, uh, the, the most recent one is uh, when General Michael Flynn had to resign. 
He said that uh, he had inadvertently briefed someone with incomplete information, which is a really nice way to say, I lied my head off. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it really will work for somebody who maybe is a real estate agent as well, right? Real estate agents got to line up to buy the book as well. Oh, absolutely. And there's a great real estate term, of course, co-exclusive, which is like being semi-pregnant. Uh, and, and all these real estate descriptions, you know, uh, uh, con- uh, con- convenient to major transportation hub, which means that it's right next door to Grand Central Station. Uh, <laughs> all the things, are, or it's, it's, or it's, 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 uh, it's exotic, which means it's really weird and needs to be rebuilt, or, or it's, it's bucolic, which means it's in the middle of the woods and you can't get to it. They're great at this. Lawyers would love this book as well. <laughs> I'm coming up with all these different people yeah, that are deceptive, yeah. Lawyers really are one of the great sources of this because, of course, they can go straight to Latin terms, you know, like, like uh, habeas corpus. Um, and, and they use a lot of, of, of uh, work around double talk to make sure that you don't really understand what's coming at you. And that's one of the things that we wanted to make, Chris Surf and I want to make clear in the book, the deliberately deceptive, the dictionary of deliberately deceptive language. People use these terms for a reason. And it's usually to, you know, to take some money from you or to convince you that some product that isn't really all that good is very good. Pharmaceutical companies love to say things like, your results may vary, which, of course, (laughs) means the stuff won't work. Or network marketers, another group of people that would would really – this would be good for them as well, you know, to kind of – put out certain terms towards things that can give people the hope that they're going to be as successful as they are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, uh, one of the things, you know, the, the business world has is a full of these ter- wonderful terms. Uh, there's a great term for sitting around doing nothing. That's zero tasking. <laughs> I mean, it's just the next time somebody says you're goofing off, say, no, no, I'm not. I'm zero tasking. And they always come up with stuff, you know, it's, a, it's not a tax increase, it's revenue enhancement, it's not a surcharge, it's a convenience fee. And it's not surveillance, it's data collection. Love it. And how long did it take you guys to come up with getting this all put together? There's a lot, there's a lot to this. Well, we did it, yeah, we did it over a period of, gee, almost a year. But the, the, the real key to it, I knew, was the internet. And we have page after page of footnotes in the back because the amazing thing is, these terms, or some of them, are just preposterous. We did not make up a single one of them. Every single one of them was accessed from a website or some legitimate source of, uh, of you know, of, of terms like this. And so, although there's, you know, there's a couple thousand of them, uh, we were able to, uh, you know, over a period of time, find them with cross indexes and so forth with the internet. Without the internet, we could never have done the book. No, not at all. And, and the people that are fans of your last book with your co-author uh, are going to love this because the fact is that first you, you go with the politically uh, correct way of saying things. Now it's, hey, you can be – and I think parents need to be deceptive as well with their children so their children don't understand things as well, Henry. That's, so that there's a book for uh, parents as well to try to get, to, to get something over on their kids because they're becoming too smart, really are. You're absolutely right about that. And again, I think it's, it's important for parents to, you know, to, to, to come up with ways, uh, maybe to, to, to describe homework as something other than homework. Uh, you know, an, an educational entertainment opportunity <laughs> I- involving the perusal of, of easily available book-like items. <laughs> and, and 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 then the fine terms, the most deception, are in these uh, little uh, words when you sign up for something. Right, Henry? They, they, they're probably filled yeah, with them. It, yeah. Yeah. It, it, fine print. It's just full of them. But the great advantage of these deceptive terms is you don't have to put them into four-point type. You can put them into 12 or 16-point type, and people still won't realize that it's not spoiled fruit. It's distressed produce. You know, and and uh, it's it's not a fraud. It's accounting irregularity. It's aggressive accounting. It's creative accounting. It's financial engineering. It's innovative accounting. It's miscertification. Oh my gosh! Wow. And from writing this book, have you used some of this deceptive language sometimes to joke around with people, or in other conversations, or just sometimes it pops up and say, "Hey," or you have this tough call you have to make, or 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 a confrontation with somebody that you say, "Okay, let me use some deceptive language with it." 
Yeah, I think it's 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 hard not to succumb to this once you realize the technique. Uh, I think we probably, Christopher Surf and I, uh, uh, we, we try to to work hard not to be guilty of the very thing that we're pointing our fingers at. Uh, but it, it, it's 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 you know it's it's a habit you could get into. You know, I'm not going to the gas station. I'm going to the motor fuel dispensing facility. Uh, that's not a garden out there that I've got. It's a recreational echo unit, and I'm not going to the garbage dump. I'm going to a resource development park. Oh, that's 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 awesome. That, that's great. And then that's and, and and I guess college kids, high school kids, they need to do this when they're getting confronted by the police to use deceptive language. Oh, officer, I was. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the more that you could avoid saying, uh, uh, yes, I'm drunk, you could say, no, I was overserved. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm tired and emotional. I mean, you've got to be able to be defensive with this stuff. And it's 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 it's, it's a great technique. Our president needs this book because he's not deceptive. He just tells it like it is, and that's getting him in a lot of trouble. So he should use this deceptive language. You know, and it, 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 you put your finger on something so so interesting because we would have thought that he would be the great source of even more of this, but he's exactly the opposite. You know, when he comes up with things like fake news or I don't ever want to call a court biased, so I won't call it biased. Uh, truthful hyperbole, that's a term that he used in his book. Uh, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. He seems to be getting away with actually saying things that aren't in the least bit deceptive. He needs to have that, and then speechwriters are definitely filled with those. Uh, they need to look at the, those uh, things as well. And it would be interesting, I, when people definitely pick up this book, they should say, when have they heard famous people say that? You could have a game out, Henry, of tweets of people that have used this deceptive language. Who did this? Who said this? Or who tried to say this to get away with something? Because it, it yeah, happens all yeah, the time. True, because it, it... It happens all the time. It's everywhere, and uh, and it's really gotten into our our culture. We now accept it. We 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 take it as just an ordinary a bit of business to hear this kind of stuff. George Orwell would be spinning in his grave as a potential energy source, uh, thinking that we would fall for this. But it really is very subversive and 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 very uh, very tempting uh, because the language just sounds great. It's, it sounds fantastic for sure, Henry. And uh, uh, tell us where we can pick up the book for sure and some information on you as well. Where can we go? I'm going to be having your co-author on in a couple of weeks. Can't wait to chat. I, I, I got the book a week ago, but now you're getting me so interested in reading some terms to, to continue the conversation because we could talk for hours on deceptive language or maybe I'll try some and then tell your co-author about it. Say, hey, I tried some deceptive language on the radio. Come on now. Radio hosts need deceptive language all the time. I need to utilize it in my education show when I'm uh, I'm the only person out there that'll speak out for the parents. I have someone who's a union member on the show and somebody who is just so pro teacher and so anti change the teaching profession. I need to use some of this deceptive language to see if I can get over. So I'll definitely be using it as well. And I, I encourage you to do so. And I think it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's a tool that we all we all should be able to use. I mean, if people use it against us, we should be able to use it. And the book, by the way, is available in bookstores and, of course, at Amazon.com. Are you on Twitter, Henry, by the way? Now we talk about you being— No, I'm not. But when you, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You, when you talk to Christopher, talk to him because he's on LinkedIn, Twitter, and everything else. I'm one of these sort of old-fashioned— um, uh, hide, hide in the dark kind of guys, but Christopher's got everything linked up and uh, uh, and 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 has a, has a website for the book. So Henry, how did everything end with the magazine National Lampoon and stuff? What was the reasoning for that going uh, ending in a way? Well, it was a couple of things. So the one thing is, uh, it was always very difficult for us to find writers. And uh, Saturday Night Live come along, and uh, basically some of our talented people quite sensibly went over there. Uh, we also had a sense that, uh, you know, we were we were kind of shot the bolt. We were we were not running on empty, but it was uh, it was a lot of work to put out a magazine for me. I was in my twenties, and I think the thing was getting a little exhausting. We had also set up a business deal with the investors uh, that we uh, who, who backed the magazine, and it really came down to the moment whether either they would buy us out. Or we would have to find some way to work a viable partnership, which didn't seem to be uh, doable. I think in the, looking back on it, probably, although it wasn't planned that way, and maybe it would have been different uh, if it hadn't been structured going into, into the process that, w- that would lead to this point, um, it 
it, it would have been hard to keep doing it for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, it was very exhausting, and uh, I think we did, we had the best of it. And then after 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 Richard Nixon resigned, we were kind of like you know. And we were missing an awful lot all of a sudden. So yeah, maybe we just now, now it's time for you to come back with uh, President Trump. There's a lot of work. Maybe uh, uh, re uh, uh, one special issue for President Trump. I- I'm thinking, Henry. You know, you could bring it out there. You're the man. So you think about that. Well, I'd certainly. Yeah, you could talk to Christopher too. We've been going back and forth. Uh, you know, I, I since I left the magazine, I've written. Uh, almost 50 short humorous books and he's done a lot himself we've done a lot together and we've gone back and forth on what we should do with this man but one of the great challenges is donald trump was the kind of clown that we would invent it we would come up with so it's a little difficult to deal with uh this character who's better i mean most more amazing than anything i could have dreamt up absolutely and then so after that with national lampoons uh when using that name for movies and stuff like that what was the reasoning for that henry were you involved with that with some of the from some of the movies no, yeah, yeah i really wasn't the, the movies were both done by my late partner doug kenny as i said animal house and caddyshack uh, which led to other movies being done uh, by some investors who were uh, partners with the people who ended up uh, running the magazine for a while. Uh, I don't think there's much uh, left of that. Uh, but certainly, uh, when you think back on it, Animal House is just an enormous, uh, uh, not just success, but had an enormous influence on comedy movie making for all time. Absolutely. All right. Well, Henry, thanks for calling. Thanks for taking the time to chat. You're welcome back anytime your next book comes out, okay? I'm here for you, and you're welcome to come on, and we'll chat again, okay? Neil, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, Henry. See ya. Thanks again. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilHaley.com. And again, always say I love working with Triumph Books. And uh, this writer, author is fantastic. So I'm excited to welcome the program author Ira Burko. He's the author of It Happens Every Spring, DiMaggio Mays, The Splendid Splinter, and A Lifetime at the Ballpark. Ira, thanks for calling. And you know what? It, it, I just can tell this baseball is your thing, man. You, uh, you, you can pick any other sport for yourself. You, you, this, this is this is the pastime that you want to spend your time doing, right? Covering. Well, yeah. Writing. I mean, uh, yeah. You know, this is a collection of, uh, of pieces, uh, magazines, co- uh, newspaper columns, uh, mostly New York Times, uh, Sports of Times column that I did for twenty six years. And uh, it's a big, thick book, as you know. It's 460 pages, but it's uh, 50 years worth of uh, of, of writing uh, and, and reporting, and uh, uh, often uh, about the major the major names, the major figures uh, in baseball, and all that time. Uh, the first piece it goes back to 1969, an interview with Satchel Paige. Wow. And and the last piece is of November 2016 after the Cubs uh, won the World Series. And I had a particular interest in this because I'm originally from Chicago, although I've lived in New York now for almost 50 years, but I was born and raised in Chicago and and grew up a Cub fan uh, for my sins. Uh, but uh, And then last year was just phenomenal. And so uh, at near deadline for the book, I was able to write a uh, a column uh, and in, in included in uh, in the book, uh, it happens every spring. See, I, I love I love this that you have interviewed such interesting people in your years covering baseball. For um, and you covered uh, for what publications did you cover baseball for so many years? Well, for one, I started with um, a, a newspaper enterprise association, which was a Scripps Howard feature syndicate, and it went to 750 papers across the country and outside the country, Canada, Mexico. Uh, and uh, and then um, I went to the New York Times, and I was there for, for 26 years, wow. and uh, I left there several years ago uh, and retired, and, uh, you know, I was turning 70, and I thought, it's, it's time to rest. Uh, but I, but I haven't still, I, I, and I still do, you know, magazine stories and, and still an occasional uh, newspaper column. So and we're going to talk about some of the people that are covered in the book for sure, but kind of, I know what our listeners are thinking, the amazing baseball players and managers and people in the baseball business that you interviewed. Did you feel 
being pressed, how difficult it was to get information out of some of these stars when you interviewed them? No, you know, it was uh, when I was really doing it, the things have changed. Uh, you go into a, 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 a baseball clubhouse, and, uh, and most, most of the players are in some private uh, room, uh, a trainer's room, where you're, you're not supposed to, uh, reporters aren't allowed in. So you're, you're standing around almost to an empty clubhouse, but it didn't used to be that way. And you could sit down and, uh, and, and, and talk to somebody, uh, or you could stand behind the batting cage and, and pick up stuff and talk to people. You're not allowed to be on the batting cage anymore. Uh, so those, those things have changed. And, uh, I mean, but in the clubhouse, well, I remember one, uh, one time, uh, Dave Rigetti, uh, who okay, was a, yeah. a star pitcher for the Yankees, and uh, uh, early on in his career, he was sent down to the minor leagues. And so uh, I went down because he was going to be looked like he was going to be you know a, a future star for the Yankees, but now he's in the minor leagues. I went down to do a story on him, and uh, and then he came back up to the Yankees. Now, if you go in the minor leagues with somebody and he comes up to the major leagues, it's like you've been in a foxhole with him in the army, you know. And and it, there's a certain camaraderie, and and like you took an interest in him when he was not a uh, a major leaguer. So, but anyway, one day um, uh, he's he's back and he's a star. And I go over to his uh, locker, and uh, I asked him a question. I don't remember what the question was. And uh, he said, you know, I already said, if I, if I answer this question, the, the guys in the clubhouse here, uh, my teammates, they're, they're going to read it, and they're all going to get mad at me. And so <laughs> I, I didn't say anything to him. I looked at him. He looked at me. I looked at him. He looked at me, and he looked around the clubhouse. And he said, you know, these guys don't read the New York Times. I'll tell you. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and he did. I don't. I don't remember. It was an innocuous question. Uh, I thought, and it was, and it, and it probably turned out to be an innocuous answer. But anyway, that's that was that. And, another time um, uh, when Michael Jordan uh, went down to play baseball with, in Birmingham with Double A team, and wow. uh, so I went. Down, I went down to do a story on him. Uh, which was really kind of interesting because I, you know, I knew him when he was the great basketball player, and now he's, now he's not succeeding as a, as a baseball player, and and it's amazing the look in his eyes when he was a star, which full of confidence, and now there was a look of uh, sitting in front of his locker with all these younger guys who were all better than him, and there was a look of befuddlement in, in his eyes, but the manager of the team, uh, the Birmingham team at the time, was a a young man named Terry Francona. Terry Francona later wow. became, became manager, of course, uh, the world champion uh, uh, Boston Red Sox, and the uh, almost world champion the Cleveland Indians last year. And uh, so, uh, but I, I, he's with the, he's managing the uh, the Red Sox now, and uh, I go into the Red Sox clubhouse to interview somebody. It may have been Manny. Uh, uh, Ramirez, uh, but I don't remember. Right, but anyway, right. I, it was a small clubhouse, and I walked past the, man, the open door of the manager's office, but I didn't even look in. I was just, I had my eyes set on, on the interview of the player. And as I walked past, all of a sudden I hear, hey, Ira, don't you say hello? And uh, I backtracked, and of course the manager was sitting behind his desk, and it was Terry Francona. So I walked in, I said hello, and uh, we, we called, uh, you know, uh, Jordan playing for uh, his team, and and I remember asking him, um, uh, did he think Jordan could ever have made the major leagues? And he said he thought that if he had 500 at bats, which is almost what a season and a half or so in the minor leagues, uh, more uh, that he could have made the majors. I'm uh, I'm not convinced of that, but. Uh, uh, that that was Francona's view of, of of Jordan as a baseball player. So when you interview these people, it's all about relationships, and it seems like Ira, you really wanted to get your readers to get information that's interesting about the people you interviewed, but you didn't want to be where you, you lost trust of that ball player. Yeah, well, you you have to ask you know uh, interesting questions, not canned questions. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, I tried to do that. I tried to, uh, you know, to, you know, to know the background of, uh, of people. And one thing is if they're, if they're having, uh, you know, you know, in the major leagues, they've all had some success somewhere and, uh, or they're even having success during the season. And, uh, what you try to do to start is say something positive, uh, not some fake 
flattery, but something real, you know. And uh, one time, I forgot, it may have been, it may have been Goose Gossage uh, when he was with the Yankees, and I was going to, I was inter- going to interview another, doing a story on another player. But sometimes you ask different players uh, about the player that you're wanting to do a story on. So some other background stuff. But I remember, I think it was Goose, and I, I said to him, it was early in the season, I said, Goose, uh, and I hadn't looked at the, the, the statistics uh, very carefully, and I said to him, uh, Goose, uh, congratulations on a, a real good season, uh, you know, so far you know, this year. And he says, I'm having a horse blank season. (laughs) 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 And I said, "Uh, well, uh," I said, well, Goose, you're you're in the major leagues. He said, yeah. I said, well, you're having a good season. (laughs) So uh, um, you should be a little more uh, cognizant of the statistics. uh, But uh, I, I tried to learn my lesson. See, and see, that's the interesting thing that you talk about. And I'm sure, Ira, what you did to keep the conversation going is really listen to the person, listen to their answers, because that's the follow up question that will get more information out of them. That right. is going to be right. relevant and, to and readers. Often, yeah. often I, I, I had my questions in my head, I didn't have them written down. I mean, sometimes, you know, even on t- it's, yeah, television, sometimes they'll interview somebody, but they have all prepared questions. And so, as you were saying, they don't listen to the answer. You know, and so to follow up, uh, they go, uh, uh, "Oh, you uh, you poisoned uh, your mother." Uh, uh, well, you know, I did. I poisoned her. And uh, what was it like in the minor leagues when you were, you know, instead they go of, on to something, yeah, they instead to something of, else? They don't follow up. They don't follow up the answer. You know, so uh, you have a as a as a. A print journalist, you have more a little more time, and you're not uh, you, you don't have those uh, x amount of seconds on or minutes on, on on television, and so you're able to follow up and you're able to have a a, a conversation. Um, about one time, I was interviewing uh, Maury Wills uh, when he was still playing, and uh, uh, and it was um, he was talking about uh, a. a um, going to Washington and being part of a protest. Uh, and uh, I, and it was just heartfelt. And I couldn't bring out my notebook. And so I just sat there with him, and we just had a conversation without writing anything because I felt if I wrote and wrote something, it would inhibit the conversation. Exactly. So, so I listened. We talked. And, you know, you can remember a conversation, especially quickly, especially if you remember the questions and then you remember what the answers were. And so I listened intently for about almost like 45 minutes. And then I left. I ran around the corner and I started taking my notes, you know, uh, uh, copiously notes. And uh, and I and I saw him the next spring and. and I uh, and I did a comment. He he read it, and it really was uh, it all quotes. I just opened up uh, where I where I interviewed him in the clubhouse, set the scene, and it was all quotes. And then I saw him next spring, and uh, and he said, "You quoted me accurately." Oh, so, good. that's good. You know, yeah. and so and what what I I, I love about. The, the, the when you talk about interviewing people because it's it's a passion of mine Ira yet it's 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 I wouldn't say it's a hobby of mine it's uh, my uh, radio and television networks all about interviewing interesting celebrities interesting authors interesting people in general and sometimes I get eight minutes sometimes I get 15 sometimes I get an hour but I like just to have a few talking points and really listen to the person it sounds like that's what you did you did research yet you didn't have canned questions you 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 knew how to open up and then in the print world, you have more time. You could have yeah. three different inter- one interview that took three different passings in a week if you were covering that same team, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, also, um, I might have one really important question. One really important question was going to be, which is going to be the, the hub of of my story. But you don't ask that question right away, you know, and. Uh, uh, Jimmy Cannon, the old great sports writer, uh, once said that uh, uh, you you, uh, you don't ask that question until near the end. Uh, you don't want to because if you ask it originally yeah. and you don't get an answer, that ends the interview. And he said, and then you go back to the office with an empty notebook. You know, so uh, <laughs> you would you ask you would ask a bunch of other questions. 
you know, filling up, you know, your notebook, and then then you ask the question, you know, is it is it true that you beat your wife, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, uh, yeah, I do the same thing, Ira. If I'm promoting like a certain thing, I have, and I only have a certain amount of time. I said I'm going to throw in a question either at the beginning or end, just for my listeners that are interested more in what they did before than what they're doing now, and just right. say, okay, I got that quote. That's great. That's all that matters. Let's let's just make it the best interview possible for my person I'm interviewing. And I think that's what's hurt journalism today is they're not looking at that person. They're looking at the what buzzword, what dirt can we dig up on that person? And people are really ignoring it. A lot of people yeah. because of what it is. It's the relationship between the sports writer and the player has changed tremendously. And that's why I think you wrote this book as well, right? The show. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, to share that information to people that hey, I had relationships with these people. Uh, they they were they were excited to talk to me. They weren't scared of the media like today and all about yeah. yeah. And a lot of times, I mean, it, you know, you could just go and sit down, as I said, with a, with a player in in the clubhouse. Uh, and uh, now, it, it's, number one, you know, the player isn't in the clubhouse. He's in the trainer's room in the clubhouse. Uh, he's not by his locker. And also. Uh, you, you talk to someone and, you know, say, uh, you know, talk to my agent, you know, uh, and then the agent, uh, tells him, you know, uh, how to answer whatever questions. Uh, so, uh, it's, it's not as fresh as, as it once was. And, uh, and I felt, uh, that it was, you know, uh, it was honored. I was honored for my profession, you know, to be able to, uh, to get the stories, uh, the, the way I did. Okay. Give me your top five interviews of all time. People ask me that same question, and you're yeah. You're, you're, well, yeah. it wasn't you know just baseball. I mean, uh, I I mean, I think the 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 first has to be uh, Ali. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then you know you wanted to the best interviews are somebody who would would fill up your note. You'd ask a question, and they might fill up your notebook. You know, I, I, if if they're going off on a tangent a little bit, then you know you come back with something else. Uh, but Casey Stengel was uh, was great, and I'll tell you another one. Pete Rose. Pete, mm. Pete, Pete had such background. I and mean, Pete is smart. You know, he's flawed. Uh, you know, he, he's he's had a he's had a problem. We all have problems of one sort or another. Uh, but Pete is is smart. He's funny, and he's knowledgeable. Um, if if you would sit with Pete and he would quote a statistic about Ty Cobb or somebody, you almost wouldn't have to go. Uh, to the baseball reference, you know, or the baseball encyclopedia, uh, he, he would be right on target. And so uh, he was, he was one. I, and I, in tennis, it was uh, uh, Arthur Ashe uh, oh was great. Wow. Um, and uh, also, uh, I'd have to say, uh, uh, Ted Williams was was mm. fantastic. Ted Williams was funny. He was fantastic. And and uh, and Jackie Robinson. I had an uh, interesting uh, relationship with Jackie Robinson. So uh, those were uh, those those were some of the people, um, right? Who uh, I did, yeah. And then at the end of your career in writing, would you say that that you said you had to get to the agent because of your reputation? You still were able to get those candid interviews because yeah, of... I did, I did, and, and I think it depends. You know, just get a, get an insightful uh, a question, an unusual question. Uh, somebody, uh, a question that that will that would provoke, you know, a, a, a response, uh, a, a heartfelt uh, response or a meaningful response, and uh, you know, I, I would I would try. Uh, um, Ted Williams, uh, I remember I reading a quote about uh, there was a story that uh, J- JFK, Henry Ford. And Ted Williams had in common. Uh, I, I, this is in the book, and I, I, as we're speaking right now, I don't remember. Uh, they had a certain a perseverance, or, uh, but anyway, I remember sitting down when Ted Williams was manager then of the Washington Senators and later the Texas Rangers, and I and I and he wasn't aware of this uh, relationship that he had by this this writer uh, sought out between JFK. Uh, Henry Ford and Ted Williams, and I asked him about that. And I asked him to respond to it, and he had never been asked that question before, and so uh, so he did. And uh, and at one point, I had a relationship with him, and he he said uh, he said I you, you ask uh, very unusual questions, and I said uh, that's because I get very unusual responses from you, Ted. 
All right, where's the best place we can purchase your book? We can go to Triumph Books, which we love. I love working with them. They have the most fascinating sports writers and 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 celebrity entertain. Uh, I, I mean, uh, athletes in the world. The the, the books are phenomenal. But uh, is that the best place to go to Triumph Books and Amazon? No, you go up uh, the bookstores, uh, Barnes and Noble, or if uh, if you have a uh, an independent bookstore in your area, which uh, often is unlikely now. But uh, uh, or uh, you know on Amazon or uh, or go through through Triumph Books. But uh, it's there; it's readily available, and uh, and I hope uh, that the people who buy it uh, will be. Uh, uh, interested, and I, I hope they will. It's uh, you know I was interested in doing it. All the stories in the book are stories that I was interested in pursuing, and that, and that's the excitement. When I think about the yeah. interviews that I pursue to finally get, and and I really enjoyed them. I don't forget them. Interviewing Mel Brooks, I'm sure I'll be talking about that 20 years from now. Yeah, uh, right. So 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 the, the, those kind of people, you, you you say to yourself, oh my gosh. That, that I got the chance to chat with such an amazing, brilliant person, and they gave me the time of day because there yeah. are times where they're not giving you the time of day either, and those definitely are not in the book, so everyone needs to check out Ira and his book, and uh, thanks again for calling. Appreciate it, Ira. All right. It happens every spring. Okay. All right. All right thanks, thank Ira. You. Take care, man. Right, bye. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to Neil Haley's show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. You can check me out on Twitter at TotalTutor and NeilHaley.com. And uh, I tell you, you, we were talking off air about how challenging it is to constantly have bestsellers and be out there and provide such great information for people and help them get healthy, happy, and all those different things. So I'm excited to welcome to the program. New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Ian Smith, author of Blast the Sugar Out, and and also success of his shred diet books, Doctor Ian. Thanks for calling. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm great. I'm great. Absolutely. So tell tell us that journey. I mean, I think it's a, such an interesting thing. You you keep cranking out books. You keep having success, and and you said it's a, it's a challenge for sure. But what drives you all the time to keep writing a next book and cranking it out, especially when you're so knowledgeable that people want you 24 seven to help you in specific areas to to have that time to crank yeah, those books well, out and just, promote them. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, um, I really started, um, as a, a TV journalist, um, a medical TV journalist. I was a doctor first. Then I started doing uh, TV for NBC and NBC news for today show and nightly news. Uh, and then I was writing a column for time magazine. It was when I was writing my column for time, um, I realized that there was such a thirst and hunger for medical information yes. from consumers, from lay people, and they just didn't have places to get it. And um, one thing everyone kept writing me about when I would write my columns, I'd write about Tylenol or the flu or something like that, and my email box would fill up with questions about nutrition and diet and weight loss and supplements. And so I just realized that there was a huge need for people who wanted to live better, eat better. And so that's when I delved into this part of my work. Um, and it just took me down a completely different path than I had originally planned for my career, and it's been extremely rewarding. This is my 14th book, Blast the Sugar Out, uh, and I was saying to you that you know it's, it hit the New York Times bestsellers list, uh, which is not to pat myself on the back, but to me that's a testament to the need that's out there for books like this. I mean, this book is a five-week plan that helps people lose weight up to 20 pounds in five weeks. Wow. It helps people uh, lower their blood sugars. Um, and it reduces addictions. If you look at the numbers, the numbers are, are unbelievable. There are 29.1 million type 2 diabetics in the country. Wow. There are 86, yeah, there are 86 million pre-diabetic. They're on the verge of diabetes, and many of them don't even know they are. And then there are millions who are addicted to sugar. And so I wanted to write a book. And, and, and just so you know, people know this stuff where they go to their doctor's office, and their doctor says to them, hey, you're type 2 diabetic or you're pre-diabetic, you have to be careful or you're addicted to sugar, but they don't give them a specific plan. They say, you know, you got to eat better, you got to exercise. Okay, well, yeah, everyone knows that, but what should people do? A person needs to be instructed. So in Blast the Sugar Out, every day I spell out for you your meal options, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks. Uh, there are recipes in the back of the book. There are snack lists in the back of the book. There are swap out. So it really is 
a one-stop shopping kind of place that gives you a five-week detailed program to help you get on the journey. And see, and, and so that's all you need is five weeks. Once you develop that routine, it, it, it changes things. It, it definitely changes things. And I, th- I think, Dr. Ian, if you made it simple for people, if you made it simple for people to be able to create the meals with how busy our lifestyles are, what an important thing. And you're really looking at those people that are close to diabetes in this book, but ultimately it can benefit everyone. But just explain what's costing, uh, I guess, our healthcare system and everything because of diabetes. Diabetes. And people that are not, you know, it's not, some people just are diabetic because they're born. That's fine. But we're talking about specifically enough people that it's based on diet alone, they've become diabetic. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So, you know, yes, the book is very simple. People want simple, straightforward plans, nothing complicated. They don't want to have to go out and buy expensive foods, organic or gourmet foods. And that's why with the foods that you see are regular, ordinary foods you can buy at any grocery store. And they're not foods like you have to fix yourself, you know, certain foods and then fix something else for your family. Everyone, kids all the way to grandparents can eat this food because you're already eating it. What I just show you is how to prepare it or how to choose foods and the right combinations so it reduces those bad sugars, sugars that you find in sugary drinks, you know, things like teas and sodas, even sports drinks, by the way. Some sports drinks have 34 grams of sugar per serving, uh, which is eight teaspoons. The way you do the math is you take the number of grams of sugar on the back of the label, divide it by four, and that is how many teaspoons are in one serving of that particular product. And so, you know, the way I've written the book is I'm trying to get rid of all these bad, bad sugars. You look at some of these breakfast bars, they have 24 grams of sugar in it. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.